Good to have you here. The panel on RNZ National, Wallace Chapman with you, Phil O'Reilly and Vic McLennan on today. Now, outgoing Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has spoken uh, just a few minutes ago at Ratana for the last time. She told the crowd at Ratana Pa that she did not expect to speak today on this, her last official event as Prime Minister of New Zealand. If you're going to leave, I say leave with a brass band. Ardern said to applause. Uh, incoming Prime Minister of New Zealand, Chris Hipkins, also spoke. The Ratana movement is a church and pan-iwi political movement founded by Tahu Pōtiki, who Ratana in 1925. And with us is Māori News reporter for RNZ, Jamie Tahana. Jamie, kia ora. Really appreciate your time this afternoon. Oh, yeah, we just ramped up, so we're out here now. <laughs> now, yeah, well, it's quite a mind you. It's a pretty busy day for you, isn't it, Jamie? I've been watching the some of the some of the scenes. Quite a gathering there, but on the outgoing prime minister's speech, what was the response? Yeah, well, I mean. Uh, it was all tentative, and as she said, when she she didn't plan to speak to Cinder Ardern, but that felt moved to because you know, Ratana is a significant movement in New Zealand politics, but also Te Ao Māori. So it was quite a quite a nice um, speech there. I mean, I was standing by some young people who were saying "Auntie, shout us a fry bread." So yeah, <laughs> that policy comes through. But um, yeah, and, and it was it was short, but she she left some final thoughts, you know, and in, in response to what we've heard over the last few days. Um, she said the overwhelming experience has been one of love, empathy and kindness and leaves with an even greater love and affection for New Zealand than when she started. And then wrapped up, you know, last Ngamihi Nui Kia Koto for the greatest privilege of, of her life. So, so, you know, it, it was quite moving briefly and, of course, followed her new Prime Minister, who's officially becomes Prime Minister mm-hmm. tomorrow, Chris Hipkins, speaking for the first time, promising to polish up his deal, among other things. Also, Christopher Luxon's first time at Ratana Jamie, and uh, indeed he has weighed into the co-governance issue. As was expected, I mean, yeah. the co-governance, I mean, there, there are many issues raised at Ratana, it's for Te Māori, but of course, you know, this is looking to be one of the hot topics of the election, but he did say the government has failed to explain co-governance in, in his words, and that national... These iwi Māori organisations, because they've got the urban groups as well, as more of a partner in these kinds of things. I mean, still for National to speak as well, to clarify how, how they see the Tetiriti relationship, that, that I think, mean, for, as we've heard from Apai today, hasn't been quite done today for many of the Māori leaders in attendance here. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of explaining still around, it seems, because, of course, you know, the Crown is a partner in the mm. relationship as well, so they've got to explain as much as Māori do. And so, you know, there, it was a warm reception for Christopher Luxon here too, because, you know, National has been attending the Ratana for, for many years as, as well. And so, you know... It does look like it's going to be an issue. Um, Rahui Papa from Waikato Painui was one of the members of the Pai saying, don't be scared of co-governance. And then you had other speakers from the Pai raising it as well, saying, you know, it's a right. But, of course, it has been around for a while, you know, in many aspects. So, of course, it differs. So... What, what, there's, there's a lot of explaining to do around it seems, but it's, it's not going to go away either as yeah. an issue or, or as a thing.
Jamie, kia ora. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much uh, for that. That's uh, Jamie Tahana, Māori news reporter uh, for RNZ. Now, uh, the co-governance issues there, but also Y262, some pretty big issues in place. Speaking from the Paipai, as Jamie said, Rahu Papa says, we welcome you to not be afraid of co-governance, but also the Y262 claim will be represented. Jamie Tahana talked about that with Guy and Espiner this morning. And with us now is a Hema Weehongi, uh, a Y262 claimant uh, descendant. Kia ora, Hema. It's great to have you on. Well, firstly, how how do you think the day's panned out at Ratana? Um, it's, it's been, um, I guess, as to be expected because you have, you've got a um, you, you know, changing over of um, the baton. So um, I think a lot of focus is on that. And um, I was found it quite interesting that not only was there co-governance um, was was uh, you know brought to the table, but also um, the uh, protection and the rights of women, and um, and I think that um, you know especially for Y two six two that's um, that spoke loudly to me. Right, and your mum was closely involved in involved in Y two six two. So for your whanau, I understand it was Kumara that started your interest in this claim, and the Kumara is of significance to Ratana. Well, it is, and, and it's not only to Ratana, but to uh, most iwi and hapu, because uh, we've all got a, a kupe story, and um, so one of the um, one of the expressions of rangatiratanga, or, or self determination, is the growing of. Um, or ceding of sovereignty of any particular uh, land was the growing of Māra Kumara. And um, there's, there's a whole, um, there's several dimensions in terms of the, um, the thinking or the lens around um, <clears throat> the growing of Kumara. It's, it's sort of multidimensional. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not uh, just okay. We've grown a garden. It's sure. um, you know that's all very well and good, but it's it's the fucker papa that comes from um, the, uh, the the kumara and all the relationships that relate to it, and and of course um, the kumara was um, is growing beside the sea, so it's also relationship between um, Tangaro or Hinemoana actually, and um, the land and there's a whole whole sort of multi-dimensional um, narrative around that which yeah. is quite beautiful really and and I think that that's um, the, the the unique um, the unique uh, indigenous Maori standards that um, need to come to any co-governance discussion. Okay, well, let's bring in Hema. We've got a panel with us, and uh, they'll uh, have a okay. short response to that. <laughs> Hema, kia ora. Uh, let's go. Let's um, stay there. Uh, let's um, start first with Vic. Uh, kia ora, Hema. Thanks for coming and talking to that. And I think you make a really good point about bringing... Uh, the the Kopapa to any discussion, um, the Y two six two claim into the co governance conversation. And one of the biggest challenges I think for many New Zealanders and certainly I find when I speak to my Pākehā family members, particularly in, in provincial towns, is understanding what that means. And there's a lot of fear that these claims and that co governance will take something away from them and they don't actually understand 
the richness that it will add to their lives and the possibilities and the future-proofing for our country. Okay, now uh, stay there, Hema. We'll bring Phil in and you can respond to both, Phil. And Hema, thanks. And I, I've always thought of Ratana as a bit like the Iowa primaries in the US, right? It's actually, it's, it's like it's not as though it's Auckland or something, but you've managed to build up this importance because you're the first of the year. You know, it's the first big political yeah. thing of the year. So good for you for, for grabbing that opportunity and really and really running with it and making something of it. But I, I agree with Vic on this. I think that the, the sensible stuff said is we need to keep talking about this. It's to, I think one of the mistakes the government made was it felt as though it was a bit secret. And I don't think the government did a good job of trying to just get out there and start explaining it. And it's a bit like the, the point about the Coomera. Now, all I want to know is that I can still eat Coomera. But if we can get more value from it, if we can get a better understanding of it, if traditional ways of doing things make it a better experience for lots of people, that's great. Fantastic. So there's an and or, right? There's response a not to, or. Response to both those, Hema? Well, I, I, I think, um, you know, they're, they're, they're um, very interesting questions. The questions I have heard before um, and, um, you know, concerns that, you know, I can um, understand from especially provincial towns. Um, and but the... One of the, my time at um, Waikato University, um, we had this um, Te papers that we were um, um, offering students. And, um, but what was missing from, from um, that, that uh, from running papers like that was any context. Mm. So there was no context about, um, you know, what our people were about, who we were, what we value, what our what our Maori standards are. We've got standards that are, you know, that are um, um, that are unique to the rest of the world, and you know, even to our, um, uh, you know, to, to our Pākehā um, um, bano. Uh, that um, you know, unless we we start to understand. Um, where we're coming from, you know, anything, any legislation, of course it's going to come along like a, a slap over the face and across the face, sorry, and, um, you know, and of course you're going to be, um, you know, a bit wary about um, anything that comes from any results or any, um, <coughs> um, yeah. any policy that's made, right? So um, I right. think that what really needs to happen is, you know, to understand that that first of all, um, that there are uh, the colonial construct, as I understand it anyway, has been very binary. It's been um, you either male or female, up or down, black or white, good or bad, and you know, and that's perpetuated in our universities with the um, you either have quantitative or qualitative data. Got it. Ham up. And so, what I'm saying here is that. With a multi-dimensional approach or lens to um, to, uh, to answer your question, is that they're, they're quite different. They're quite different, and Got understanding it. that um, that difference, I think, is the beginning to is the beginning. It's a starting to, uh, point, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Hey, kia ora, Hema. Thank you for being with us. That's uh, Hema Wehonga, who is a Y262 claimant uh, and who is uh, phoning in from Ratana there. Before that, we had Jamie Tahana, uh, our uh, Māori news reporter. 20 past four. Goodness gracious me. Uh, feedback flooding through uh, about uh, whether or not homework should be banned. The um, Irish president said, oh, yeah. And a lot of teachers coming through. I've got my own views on this. 
you have the privilege of hearing them uh, very, very shortly. But to this, first, we had the mood of the boardroom with Fran O'Sullivan at the end of last year on the panel. Now to mood of the workforce. The Mood of the Workforce is in its fifth year running. It's run by the Council of Trade Unions. It's a survey of 1,870 union members, and it shows just one in four workers' incomes are keeping pace with inflation. StatsNZ have revealed that food prices went up 11.3% last year. With us is the CTU Secretary, Melissa Ansell-Bridges. Melissa, welcome. Hi, good afternoon. Is this a counterweight, if you like, to Mood of the Boardroom? Well, I suppose it's pro, um, providing the the experience of working people. And just a quick point of clarification that the respondents weren't all union members. Got it. So um, they come from our broader database. A lot of them, um, you know, are, some of them will be obviously, but uh, many of them may not be. And okay. certainly what we're, you know, what we're seeing from them is, in, you know, now usefully in its fifth year, um, a kind of an expression of what their experience at work in particular is like, but also how things are going for them in the economy in general as well. And not particularly good. Uh, it looks like one of four workers' incomes aren't keeping pace, so there's a bit of struggle there. But uh, Phil will have views on this as well, Vic. One thing from me, though, I do note that 44% of people had not received a pay rise in the past year. That kind of surprised me. I thought that... Um, quite a few more than that would have. Yeah, that was really interesting, actually. And um, even more so, 21% of people hadn't had a pay rise for over three years. Um, so that's, right. I mean, that's quite significant, especially given you know the cost of living changes over the last um, couple of years. It's a really long time to be going without a pay rise. I mean, ever, but particularly in the current climate. So there's definitely um, work there that we need to be doing. And, and as you said, you know, three quarters of people felt like their um, income was falling behind. Okay, well, I'll tell you who's got the answers. Tell you who's got the answers. You've come to the right place because we have no less than the chair of the Board of Business at the OECD, Phil. Amazing. You- oh, oh, th- thanks for that. <laughs> you weigh in. Uh, well, it, firstly, the, the, the no pay increase thing. Of course, I mean, I, I don't know too much about the, the data set, but of course many businesses have done it tough over the last two or three years too. If you're in retail or in hospitality or in tourism, in fact, you've also had massive cost increases. So I was just talking to a business this morning, it's had a, a food cost increase of 50% can't put their prices up. So the point is that everybody's doing it tough, and that's not to that's not to say so workers should just suck it up. Not not the point at all. But it is to say there will be reasons why some of those workers, I suspect, won't be receiving pay increases and because the companies fair, are doing doing it pretty tough right now, right? I mean, certainly, you know, we we, we acknowledge that it's been a, a challenging time for for some businesses. I mean, some have done quite well in, in recent years as well, but, but some certainly there have been challenges. And, you know, one of the things that we're really hoping for, obviously, is we've got fair pay agreement legislation now. So that passed end of last year. We're likely to see um, this year more agreements being um, initiated and bargained. That's really going to help working people in those industries who for too long haven't had, you know, access to the strengths and, you know, that comes from collective bargaining because they don't have access to union membership. Um, And so that's really going to help workers in those industries. But, you know, more needs to be done. We think that the minimum wage should be a living wage, that everybody um, that, you know, that's in work... um, has, you know, does a, does a full um, right. week's work, yep. has enough to actually live on, not just, you know, 
survival. What have we got? Some of the some of the uh, and uh, the some of the uh, uh, responses from the survey. Interesting here, Vic. I'm working three jobs. I've got two side hustles, and still I'm barely keeping my family fed and cared for. Something does need uh, to give. Another one here. I'm just sick of working to live. I can't afford the basics. Victoria. Yeah, it's heartbreaking to read stories like that, and I um, I really feel for everyone who's in that position in the economy. I um, am running the industry peak body for the digital technology industry, where our median salary is double that of New Zealand's median, something around $96,000 a year. And one of the things I think we need to do as a nation is really lift the... Um, the whole economy, move more people into higher wage salary industries um, and get out of this kind of situation where we've got people having to have three jobs. It's just yeah. unbelievable. Okay, so we, does we this... completely support that moving towards a high-skill, high-wage, um, low-carbon economy um, and you know, investing in skills and training for working people is absolutely a part of that. Oh, does this give as clear an indication as any, briefly, Melissa, that the election will be the bread and butter election? Certainly. Melissa Ansa Bridges there, CTU Secretary Cura. 25 past four of the panel on RNZ National. We have Phil O'Reilly, Victoria McLean. Now, the President of Ireland has called for homework to be banned. President Michael Higgins said the time in school is an educational experience and it should get finished at school and people should be able to use their free time for other creative things. Text me, 2101. I can recall being swamped by homework when I was at school. In fact, my this is Nelson College and my bag was so heavy, I had about eight big fat books it must have been 15 kilograms and I just had to do so much damn homework but am I against it? No, I think it was good for me I think that we need to have homework. Did homework from 7 to 9pm every night and look what turned out. With us is Jason. Kia ora Jason Kia ora Wallace. So you're an ex-teacher? I am, yes What what do you think? What do I think? I think um, no homework what? Maybe a bit of re- maybe a bit of reading. <laughs> yeah, but, but 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 hang on, you're a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found uh, the the kids were stressed, like yourself, but overloaded with work, and they were coming into school tired. But if they had a little bit more relaxing time at home, they they came in more prepared. But what about getting ready for society, all the overtime you have to do, all the extra all the extra work that has been lumped on you as preparation for the real world? Got it. Their brains are still developing, so they've got to, got to have some time off. And, and reading is still helpful. So if you read something that you love or that you like, you're interested in, then you're more, um, you're more keen to learn something else. All right, so this is Jason here, an ex-teacher who says no to homework, uh, agreeing with um, the Irish president. What about you, Phil? I think there should be a ban on boring homework. Uh, that's what I reckon. Where, where homework, and that's by the president of Ireland, by the way, is, a, is not a particularly powerful figure. He's a figurehead, right? He's the head of state, but he's, he's, a, he's a figurehead, which is why he gets the right to do this sort of stuff. But look, the short point is if homework, I reckon, is simply trying to catch up on the lessons of the day, then it should be banned. If it's an, it's, it's an interesting background exercise, a bit of reading, a bit of uh, research, 
a bit of background, something you can do with your parents or with your caregivers or with your siblings, then great, and you should do it. But I, but fundamentally, I agree with you, Wallace, that life is simply not a situation where anymore where people go to work and then go home and don't do anything. In fact, life is increasingly not going to be like that, particularly if Vic's right, and we're all going to turn into knowledge workers. That's the opposite of all of that stuff. So we need to prepare ourselves for a time when work is not sort of work then play it's a bit yep. of work and a bit of play all at once and that's what go, homework should be about too go home 3.30 have a snack a milk and a cookie half an hour of TV dinner jam, gym jams back into homework back into school Vic stay there Jason we'll come back to you Look, I'm, I'm with Jason and the President of Ireland and the, the President made a really good point about kids should spend their time after school on activities that help them be curious and expand their minds and I remember my parents used to make us play board games and card games and things, you know, different things to experience different things as well as homework and like you, Nelson College for Girls was terrible, I used to take a heavy backpack home every night but my kids when they were at primary school had teachers who would give them amazing activities like go outside and find a praying mantis or um or do something that's that's not as phil was describing continue your schoolwork, but actually do something that gets you outside and some discovery activity okay so there you go jason you got a bit of disagreement there but uh here we're seeing victim might i say to you jason that um we've had many teachers uh, uh, get in touch with me this afternoon, and guess what? They almost entirely agree with you. I wouldn't be surprised. That's what we were told at TCOL. <laughs> Is that right? Is that what the message was at Teachers' College? Yeah. <laughs> Un- but, um, yeah, they were they uh, they pushed on to you the necessities, and yeah, um, yeah. And when I was at Mother Lake High. I'm just saying that because you went to Nelson Boys and Nelson Girls. Motowika High, good, good school. school. Good school. <laughs> I had too much time, Rick. I had two bags on my bike, so... Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh, they keep on coming. Um, hello, panel. I taught primary for 30 years. Done both homework with no homework. Conclude homework wastes teachers, parents, and children's energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be it must be so soul destroying for teachers. They said all this homework. Ninety five percent of kids don't complete it or do it. They get frustrated with their students. It's, Not it's... Phil and I. Not <laughs> Phil O'Reilly and I. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> Jason. Thank you for your time. Very good. Uh all right. Uh, another one here. As a former secondary school teacher, I am against homework, which is often just busy work given in haste. At the end of the lesson before the bell, give the children ideas they can pursue but no compulsory uh, activities. Wonderful to hear uh, your thoughts across the country. You are on the panel with me, Wallace Chapman, uh, Phil O'Reilly and Victoria McLennan. Not many people have got the song whisper today. I'll say it again because we're, ta- we're going to be playing it in one and a half minutes' time. Half past 12 and I'm watching the late show in my flat all alone. How I hate to spend the evening on my own Autumn winds blowing outside the window as I look around the room. Who wrote that? 